Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. Like, if I was on my deathbed and could have one professional goal met, you know, it would be redomesticating a lost crop. (laughs) It's definitely something that will take decades. Part of what creates those compounds in the plant that are medicinal is its struggle for survival. If you pamper it too much, it's just not as effective as a medicine. Scientists detected high-frequency sounds emitting from plants that have been cut or dehydrated. And so how exciting is it to know that there's food everywhere? I mean, this this is the core of the excitement for me of all foraging. If you just take an acorn and eat it, it's, it's not good. And it could even be considered sort of like mildly poisonous. You have to leach all the tannins out of it in order to make it palatable. Domesticated animals are very familiar. Some animals we care for as companions, others we keep for work, and still others are farmed as sources of food. But have you ever thought about domesticated plants and how certain ones get to crop status? Archaeologist Natalie Mueller is a Washington University professor and researcher who thinks about those questions all the time. She's here to share what she's learned through the process many, many processes, in fact, of planting wild seeds to re-domesticate a lost crop and what that can tell us about growing new crops in the age of climate change. Natalie, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Before we dig into your latest research, um, I think we should start with basics that play into what you study, which is plant domestication. What is domestication? So... (laughs) This is unfortunately not as easy to answer as you might hope. (laughs) I teach a class about domestication, and uh, that's actually the only question on the final exam. (laughs) Wow. So people don't really agree on what domestication is, obviously. There's lots of different uh, definitions that people have proposed, but the way that Mm -hmm. I define it is um, as a process, an evolutionary process, in which um, plants and animals are really responding to human care, human investment of time and energy. Um, And so you can track that through looking at the way that their bodies change over time as they're living in um, close association with human communities. Mm -hmm. What are a couple examples of domesticated crops, maybe one we know well, and then another that folks might not think about in those terms? Sure. So the one that I usually always start with is corn, which botanists call maize, just to be difficult. Um, (laughs) And this was actually the one that got me interested in domestication as an undergraduate because a professor showed a picture of the wild ancestor of maize or corn right next to like a big juicy corn cob that we all know. And the wild ancestor looks completely different. It's just Mm -hmm. like a tiny stack of like rock hard seeds um, that don't look at all appetizing. Uh, And over time, that was transformed through uh, evolution in human managed environments into the juicy corn cob that we know. Mm-hmm. So that's a really extreme example. This, the plants that I study, as you you know referenced in your introduction, are I call them lost crops. So these are plants that um, nobody is cultivating anymore. We only know about them through remains from archaeological sites. And so the one that I've been studying for the longest is called knotweed. 
And it's a plant that, if you know it at all, you've probably seen growing in the cracks of a sidewalk. Mm, okay. <laughs> but um, what we see in the archaeological record are similar kinds of changes as we see in crops like corn, right? Mm-hmm. So it, bigger seeds, easier to digest, easier to process. And so as far as a crop that people might not think of as being a domesticated one, is is there one that we have sort of relative um, access to or that we see around, but it just would not register as something that's domesticated? Hmm. That's a harder question. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, all of the, uh, not all, but most of the ornamental plants that we grow in our gardens are domesticated plants. And a lot of them are really ancient. So mm-hmm. people have actually been domesticating things uh, just for beauty or for their pleasure for a long time, too. So yeah. things like roses and daffodils and, you know, uh, those kinds of plants. Even at this point, the long grass that you plant, like turf grass, that's a that's a domesticated plant that people have been um, – so it's more like a bread crop, right, that people have been breeding for particular – um, characteristics. Okay. Bread, B-R-E-D, not B-R-H. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah. Since we're talking about food. Now, how does a crop get domesticated? Um, tell us about the qualities and some of the process that's involved. Yeah, sure. So um, the way that people have thought about it for most of the history of thought about this is that it's similar to crop breeding, as in bread, mm-hmm. <laughs> in that people are exerting specific Select, they have criteria, they have selective criteria that they're using to propagate certain plants and to kill off or not propagate other plants. And so, you know, they may be selecting bigger seeds or they may be culling the smallest seedlings when they're going through and, um, and weeding their fields in the spring, which has a similar effect in that it, uh, it provides an advantage to bigger seeds. Um, but the way that I've started to think about it in my research is that it has more to do with the inherent ability of certain plants to respond to human care. Mm -hmm. So some plants are going to basically look and behave exactly the same way, whether you're taking care of them or not. (laughs) (laughs) And from the perspective of a human who needs food, like you may not really be, you may not have that much incentive to continue to interact with that plant, right? Mm -hmm. Like just let it do its thing. Um, But other plants, like the ones I study, they're considered sort of weedy. Mm -hmm. Sorry. If you take a weed and you cultivate it in a garden... Um, I don't know if anyone's ever had this experience, but it basically completely changes the plant. Like it's much bigger. It has different architecture. It um, produces a lot of seeds. Mm. And so this is the kind of thing that I've been studying in my re- my experimental research is like okay. if you take these wild plants and you cultivate them, um, how do they respond to that care that you give them? Mm-hmm. Where did the idea come from to start doing this <laughs> and specifically with erect knockweed, yeah. not weed? Yeah, that's a great question. So it started because I just needed to understand what I was seeing in the archaeological record. So what I have in the archaeological record is just a bunch of old seeds. Usually they're burnt, so they don't even look that great. Okay. (laughs) Uh, So in order to interpret what might have been going on with humans from that tiny amount of evidence, I needed to really understand how how the seeds of the plant look in different environments and um, under different kinds of care by people. And so I started to do experiments on this plant uh, almost 10 years ago just to get sort of like a baseline to compare to the archaeological record. And what I immediately realized was that it really depended, right? Like there was no one baseline. It depended on what I was doing. And so that kind of led to this whole branch of research where I'm looking at domestication more as a developmental process than as an evolutionary one. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the things that uh, that you've run into as 
challenges in in the midst of doing this sort of research? Uh, <laughs> well, there's been a lot. The first challenge was that um, I, it's really hard to find some of the plants that I study. So they're considered weeds, but they're native North American weeds. And in a lot of cases, they're facing a lot of competition from introduced weeds that are doing better in the kinds of environments that we've created today. Um, and the places where I want to collect them, which is the Midwest, the Midwest probably most people don't think about it as an industrial landscape because it's thought of as like being full of agriculture, right? Like fields, but it's industrial agriculture. And that doesn't leave a lot of room really anymore for plants that are not the crops that we're growing, right? So the first challenge I faced was finding these plants. Um, And the second challenge is like actually being able to grow them. I mean, if you were doing this research with a plant that there were still farmers around that you could ask, then you would ask them and they would tell you like accumulated centuries of knowledge about how to take care of them. But in this case, like I'm just kind of reinventing the wheel. So it it can be kind of challenging. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, I mean, you're basically the only researcher who's looking at erect knotweed, right? Yeah, more or less, yeah. And did did you set out sort of with that in mind, like wanting to research something that others were not paying attention to or did just happen to be the case? Definitely. Uh, I was so interested in this as soon as I heard about it, the lost crops. I read about an article about it by my my doctoral advisor when I was an undergrad, and I just thought, like, this is so cool and interesting that there's these plants just growing as weeds on the landscape that were once so important to human societies. And yeah, it's it's understudied. Even within archaeology, it's definitely understudied. And I like that about it. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking with Natalie Mueller, an assistant professor of anthropology at Washington University, about her research into an extinct domesticated subspecies of the buckwheat family, erect knotweed. Her findings could have applications for developing new crops, especially as climate change presents new challenges to the way we grow food. Now, on that note, do you have um, some sense of what it is that knocked out uh, erect <laughs> knotweed, and um, why it is you're having to go through all of this in order to in order to study it the way that you are? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and we really don't have a, an answer to it yet. It's an open question, um, and one that I hope someone will spend some time looking into soon. Um, but, you know, the most easiest answer is that other crops replace these these crops. And those crops are the ones that everyone, I think, associates with indigenous agriculture, things like corn, beans, squash, right? Mm-hmm. Things you eat at Thanksgiving. Yeah. Um, that Euro-American settlers really received from indigenous farmers. Um, and so it's true that some of the older crops were replaced or fell out of cultivation um, because these other crops started to be cultivated. But some of the older crops that were domesticated here remained in that agricultural system. So sunflowers and certain varieties of squashes that were domesticated in, in North America, in this part of North America. Um, and I think another part of it was the Euro American invasion, right? Like a lot of knowledge and a lot of um, practices were lost during that time because um, populations were displaced and they could only take certain things with them and knowledge holders were lost, right, without passing on their knowledge to other people. Mm -hmm. So right now, the latest dates that we have on these lost crops are like in the 1400s. I mean, they're basically at contact, right? So we don't really know exactly when people stopped growing them. Mm Well, since you started growing them, and because uh, many people do think with their stomachs, Natalie, you've worked with local chef Rob Connolly, who uses primarily foraged ingredients that are native to this region for the cuisine at his restaurant, Bull Rush. A few years ago, as you were attempting to grow erect knotweed in different ways, you shared some of your seeds with him 
to see what he could make with them. And Rob said, based on his knowledge of Indigenous foodways, the seeds were most likely ground up and turned into porridge. That's what he tried to emulate with a grinder called a melanger. We were still struggling with the husk of the seed being too hard. And what? how could we help it to be a digestible product? By putting in the melanger, we can get it to a microscopic level. I mean, we can grind it overnight and uh, maybe even add a little oil if we need to. And that's just going to be a, it's a peanut butter, essentially. It's going to be a, a paste. And so that we ended up doing that and adding some roasted vegetables. Um, and it ended up being a really nice hummus. You know, we call it hummus, um, where it had some bitterness from the seed, some of that oily, let's call it an omega fatty flavor that you might get. Um, and technically, Dr. Mueller would correct me on whether that's chemically what's in there, but it, it's the flavor that as a chef I get is that the fish, not fishy, but almost fishy, oily um, flavor. That's St. Louis chef Rob Connolly <laughs> talking about the erect not weed seeds and kind of laughing at the way that he's describing the. the it doesn't make it sound very appetizing. No, well, and now here's his, I guess, fuller reaction to the taste. Yeah, it's not my favorite. Um, of the seeds that Dr. Mueller's brought me, it's definitely not my favorite. But when I think about the fact that this is in the same realm as buckwheat, I get very excited because it, then it just takes some some seed scientists, some farmers who can work with it for a number of seasons and get it to a point of being a viable crop. And, and so, you know, when we talk about buckwheat, to think about this weed that's all over and think that um, we know it can handle the climate. And so how exciting is it to know that there's food everywhere? I mean, this, this is the core of the excitement for me of all foraging. This is why I'm so hyped on serving acorns all the time at the restaurant. It's no different. It's just uh, acorns a lot easier than dealing with this, this uh, knotweed. And so um, I think there's a, a lot of interesting potential on my end. You know, it's, it's definitely a quirky thing where we just see what we might be able to do with it. And then we have to wait our time until someone like Dr. Mueller is able to show that it can be brought to us in volume and and we figure out um, some of the techniques to make it digestible. And then ultimately, can it be done in a way that is nutritious, delicious, and safe? So Rob Connolly talked about um, digestible. And then palatable is, that's going to depend because taste is very subjective. Um, what are the reasons beyond something tasting good to you know, bring it back? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So I think there's a couple things that came up in Rob's talk that I think are important. The first one is the difficulty that he had in processing it and his like melanging of it, right? And then the tastes and textures that are introduced by having that hard seed coat on it, which is that fishy taste that he's talking about and things like that. It's important to keep in mind that those are the exact things that were reduced by domestication in the case of the seed. So mm -hmm. when we see those ancient domesticated seeds in the archaeological record, they don't have that like hard seed coat that's full of like basically waxy fats. Um, and so it probably would have tasted a lot different too. And that's something that happens like 
very commonly with domestication is that bad tastes are lost along the way. Um, but usually we can't really see that in the archaeological record because, sure. you know, it's like a burnt seed. So what are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. Um, but another, but there's other reasons, like you said, that people might have domesticated these plants. And one thing that's been proposed, not so much for not weed, but for another one of them, is that uh, they may have some sort of medicinal uh, effects. And so in a lot of cultures, right, like food and medicine are not separate categories mm-hmm, the sure. way that they often are for Americans. Um, and so something can be a staple food and also be seen as medicinal and be effective against certain things. And especially in the past when people were struggling with uh, parasites and like um, infections that couldn't be treated with antibiotics, um, plants that had anti-parasitic or antibiotic effects would have been really important. Now, I don't have any actual evidence that these are medicinal plants. I need a plant chemist collaborator, <laughs> so feel free to, you know, drop me a line Peter if you hope, are yeah. one and you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> what are a couple of examples of um, of things that we do eat regularly, but they're not domesticated? Mm-hmm. Um, and whether it is eaten for um, like the comestible sort of that aspect or for for health? What are a couple of examples there? Well, Rob mentioned one, which is acorns. And I think it's funny that he thinks acorns are easy to process because they're actually not, not very easy to process. I mean, if you just take an acorn and eat it, it's it's not good. And it could even be considered sort of like mildly poisonous. You have to leach all the tannins out of it in order to make it palatable. So that's an example of a wild food that you can just go buy acorn flour like in the store. Mm-hmm. But then there's also lots of medicinal plants. Um, and one example that's interesting because people actually value it for its wildness is ginseng, mm-hmm. right? So like for ginseng, you can buy cultivated ginseng, but it's not considered to be nearly as effective as a medicine because part of what creates those compounds in the plant that are medicinal is its struggle for survival in the wild, right? Right. If you pamper it too much, it's just not as effective as a medicine. Yeah. And by process, it's what do you have to do to it in order to get it where you want it to be? Which? Acorns or ginseng? Oh, I mean, anything <laughs> as far as as far as process goes. Um, you know, you are now using wild seeds from the erect knotweed plant to try to re-domesticate mm-hmm. the crop. Why is that? Uh, I just think it would be so cool. Like <laughs> if I was on my deathbed and could have one professional goal met, you know, it would be re-domesticating a lost crop. <laughs> but <laughs> it's definitely something that will take decades. Like the example, the only time that anyone has ever done this experimentally that I'm aware of is an uh, experiment called the Fox Farm Experiment, which is ongoing in Russia. And it started in the... 50s, I think. Um, And what they did there was they really wanted to understand domestication as a process. Uh, And so they took a a wild animal, a fox, and they started to select this population of foxes for one trait, which was non-aggression towards people. So Mm -hmm. foxes that like wouldn't bite people. And over the course of generations, they ended up with domesticated foxes that behave and look and reproduce completely differently from wild ones. (sighs) Um, this has never been done with a plant, a sort of experimental domestication, but I think we could learn a lot from it. Like this experiment is extremely famous in domestication studies. It's taught us so much. And so that's sort of my long-term goal is to do that. But of course, the sort of processes that led to domestication that I'm interested in are very subtle compared to plant breeding. They're Mm -hmm. less controlled. So it'd be, you know, things like I was saying before, like thinning out, you know, seedlings or like um, selecting a particular plant that has attributes that you like and like 
um, using those seeds in the next year, things like that. Whereas a plant breeder is going to isolate lines of, you know, try to create homogenous lines and isolate them and cross them. And so the same thing could be accomplished, not the same thing, but something similar could be accomplished much more quickly with plant breeding. Mm-hmm. Now, insofar as, uh, you know, climate change goes, um, obviously there has been some change that has happened. Um, what kind of lessons are we learning that are applicable to um, growing crops that are going to be more resistant to climate change? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. One thing that's really interesting about the agricultural system of indigenous people in eastern North America, whether you're talking about maize, beans, and squash era or lost crops era, um, is that it was really diverse uh, taxonomically and in terms of what the different crops could withstand when it came to things like drought and flooding. And so it was a really resilient agricultural system in the face of past climate change, right? And so I think we can take some inspiration from that and uh, maybe not, you know, institute the exact same, uh, the exact same agricultural system today, but take inspiration from the diversity of it um, is the the biggest sort of takeaway, I would say, for our agricultural system. And what other lessons do indigenous cultures teach about crop cultivation? And what about our relationship to plants? Um, can I treat those as two different questions? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so I think the the other the other big takeaway from that I I take from indigenous agriculture is that it's really looking at a landscape or an ecosystem holistically. You know, uh, looking thinking about an agro ecosystem as opposed to just the production of a single crop. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something that is absolutely recreatable in the present. Um, And then as far as our relationship with plants, there is something that you gain from agriculture by hand, right? Where you would like cultivating plants yourself and and touching them and weeding and harvesting them yourself, um, that you really can't get that perspective from any other type of activity. Um, And that's really the the part of my research that has led me to believe that plants are are really responding to focus on the way that plants respond to people Mm -hmm. that millions of people had in the past and very few people have today. Yeah. And, you know, we started the conversation talking about ways plants respond to their environment and us as humans. And there's been some emerging research that suggests plants are not nearly as passive as many of us have thought. Um, a study this April was published in the journal Cell and suggests that plants make noises when they're stressed, and scientists detected high-frequency sounds emitting from plants that have been cut or dehydrated. And there's also study about what kind of communication occurs amongst plants um, when sharing resources and that sort of thing. I mean, how does that play into your work about plant domestication? Yeah, I think it's really key. Um, I think that it's I take a lot of inspiration from this new sort of like push within ecology and plant sciences to understand uh, plants as agents, plants as um, beings that are capable of acting or uh, that have behavior. Right? right, right. Yeah. So in this last minute, Natalie, can you tell us about um, what is next with this research and whether you're working with others who are going to kind of take erect knotweed further? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm not sure about a rock knotweed, honestly. My student, my graduate student, uh, Megan Belcher, she's working on another one of the lost crops, which is called Goosefoot. 
And it's a close relative of quinoa. So it's a little bit more easy to understand as a crop, I would say, than knotweed and more palatable. Um, inherently, it's something that foragers already eat. And one of the things that she's planning on doing is going out and collecting. You know, we're having trouble finding, again, uh, the native species is hard to find because the Eurasian species is very common. And so this fall, she's actually going to do a survey by canoe, which will be really fun. Oh. Um, this plant grows on riverbanks, you know, and so going out and collecting um, seed from a lot of different populations. And that contributes to our goal of, of really just having more seed to share with people who, who want it, want to experiment with these plants. Natalie Mueller is an archaeologist and professor of anthropology at Washington University. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks. It was great. This episode was produced by Emily Woodbury. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.